especially want to welcome visitors. Um, if you have your Bible with you, turn to Matthew 5. If you don't have your Bible with you, um, you can take, this, if you look at the pew in front of you, it says a book, it's called The Story. We're going to be reading from Matthew. We've been studying the Beatitudes the last few weeks. Go halfway through your Bible, make a right. It's in the book of Matthew chapter 5, or you can just follow on the screen. Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him. And he opened his mouth, and he taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you that word is it's a living two-edged sword. It's not like reading the dictionary. Your words jump off the pages. They speak to our hearts. We pray you would speak clearly through Jimbo. We pray you would take what he shares from our head to our heart to change us to be more like you. And Lord, most importantly, we pray that if there's anybody here who doesn't personally realize how eternally you love them, how you died, how you rose again, how you long to have a relationship with them, how you truly are the answer to every need here, we pray you would make that clear to them and we would respond in a way that you would respond. And we ask these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. 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 Go ahead and grab a seat. Um, I'm so glad you're here today. I'm really excited about uh, our passage today, our message today, as we continue in the, the Sermon on the Mount, specifically the Beatitudes, which we've been in for a few weeks now. I told you in the Beatitudes we'd go a little bit at a snail's pace. But once we get past the Beatitudes, it will pick up uh, a little bit in bigger sections. But uh, these are each so rich, I feel like I could almost preach two sermons on each Beatitude. But um, I want to talk about, so this weekend I got, I got to, uh, to hang out with my mom, which I don't get to do very much anymore. Uh, my aunt actually lives in Palatka, Florida, and she uh, had sold her house and moved to a beachfront condo in St. Augustine. Uh, and so my mom came down to help her move. <laughs> and so Friday I took the day off, and me and the, and the wife and kids, we went down to St. Augustine, got to hang out on, on this beach with my mom and my aunt. And it just was a really good time. It was a private beach because it was off this condo, and so it wasn't even very busy. And it was just an incredible time. And I know, I don't know, sometimes you get to experience a moment like that. And, and I'll be honest, I've had those moments here on Sunday mornings at times where, where we've had a service where, uh, man, I just I felt like the presence of the Holy Spirit was there. Things went well. The sound didn't mess up. Uh, all the things went the way they were supposed to go. And and you, just every once in a while you feel like, man, this is, this is what life is supposed to be like, right? But the problem is that it always ends, right? Like it always, it always comes to an end. The greatest moments in life always come to an end. And if we're honest, sometimes, even in our greatest moments, we think, I feel like life is about more than this, isn't it? I, I think I, I struggle with it sometimes, especially when I get stressed out, but even in my good times sometimes, I just think, I just feel like there's more to this. Like, 
Like, I'm not getting the whole picture. Like, I'm not getting the whole thing. Like, something is missing. And, and I think that's a universal feeling that we have. I think we all experience that in life. C.S. Lewis had something to say about that. He said, if I find myself, if I find in myself a desire which no experience in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that I was made for another world. So in other words, if, if, if I find within myself this, this, this longing, this hunger, this thirst for something that no matter what I experience, it just leaves me still wanting at the end of it. No matter how great it is in the moment, it, it, it ends, doesn't it? And, and we find ourselves, and this is, this is where I think Jesus takes us today in Matthew 5, 6. And my main idea for this morning is disciples. Because this is what he's describing. This is what it's like to be a disciple in the kingdom of God. When we read the Sermon on the Mount, the, the, it's a description of what it looks like to be a disciple. Disciples pursue righteousness and find satisfaction in Christ. Now, we're going to work through this, but basically what I'm trying to tell you is that longing that you have, the closest you'll come to finding it satisfied, this side of glory will be in righteousness, will be in obedience. And that sounds kind of crazy, but I want to take us there. First, I want to understand what does Jesus mean when he says righteousness? Because there's different ways to look at righteousness. There's righteousness in the way that Paul writes about righteousness as a legal righteousness, a legal standing. Being declared righteous is what Paul would argue, is that we are, we are guilty. We stand before the judge as guilty. We plead guilty. But our lawyer, our mediator, Jesus, with the blood of Jesus, stands before us, in between us, as our mediator. And he says that we are righteous, that we have right standing. That's legal righteousness. But I don't think that's specifically even what Jesus is talking about here. And I think there's some clues that give us that. So what I want to do to give us some clues is look at the word righteousness and how it's used in the Sermon on the Mount specifically. And so it starts, the first time we see it is here in Matthew 5, 6. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Which is our our passage for today that we're trying to figure out. But Matthew 5.10 is also here in this section. It says, Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. So we see both both of these ideas here just in the Beatitudes. We'll get further into the Sermon on the Mount here in a minute. But I want you to look on the back of your bulletin. I put a a chart there for you on the back of your bulletin. It's going to be on the screen as well. And so, but it's right there on the bulletin so that you can take it home. And I want to talk to you about how I found, I think, some clues here, just in the Beatitudes, of what Jesus means when he says righteousness. Because when we see patterns in, in the Bible, it, it's usually trying to point us to something. If you remember before, I talked to you about the sandwiches that we see, right? We see a sandwich in the Beatitudes, and in the first one, the promise is the kingdom of heaven. And then we see that in verse 10, the promise is the kingdom of heaven. We see a sandwich there. And I'm convinced that these are the eight Beatitudes. Some people will say that there's nine Beatitudes, but I'm going to make an argument that there's eight. And then it's grouped in two groups of four, which each end in righteousness, and so what we've got here on, on your left-hand side, you've got group one. On your right-hand side of your chart, you've got group two. And each of these have three uh, descriptors that then end in righteousness in the fourth, right? 
So these are the eight Beatitudes. Now, this is significant because I want you to see, I think on the, on the left-hand side there, which is 5, 3 through 6, we see that we're the, the poor in spirit, blessed are the poor in spirit, for they shall receive the kingdom of heaven or be in the kingdom of heaven. Blessed um, are, okay, we got this. This is kind of out of order right here. All right, but anyway, I, I got it in my head. All right, so five, five, three, we've got blessed are the, the poor in spirit, which we've talked about what that is. And then we move from that to blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. And then chapter, verse five is blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth, is what we talked about last week, which leads us to six. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. So we've talked about, we see a progression here, that we are poor in spirit, we are spiritually bankrupt, we see our poverty, our spiritual poverty, our, our need for a savior, our, our brokenness. We talked about how in this, in this bankruptcy, when we, when we get to the bankruptcy table, on one side of the ledger, we see all the debts that we owe, and it's this insurmountable debt that there's no way we can pay. And then when we look to what's supposed to be our line of assets, the only thing we possess is more debt. And so we are bankrupt. We are poor in spirit. And then we see that next we are to mourn that. Right? We're to recognize that. We're to recognize where we stand. And we are to mourn and grieve our position. But then Jesus doesn't leave us there. We're to be comforted by the gospel. And through that, we can take a posture of meekness, which is really freedom from having to think about yourself. Uh, we could summarize it. We summarized in our small group this, this last Wednesday night. Uh, you could summarize it. God's got it. Right, No matter what the situation, if, if people are coming after you, if people are saying things about you, if things are happening against you, you've got confidence in the fact that you stand with Christ and he's got you taken care of. You're poor in spirit, so you're owed nothing. And so you say, God's got it. And this is what it is to be meek. Now, this will result in a hunger and thirst for righteousness. Now, on this left-hand side is this, is this kind of an emptying. It's an emptiness, Right? To have poverty in spirit is to be emptied of, of owning anything that's worth anything. To, to mourn is to kind of empty that out. To be meek is to empty yourself of, of your, your ability to stand for yourself, but know that Christ stands for you. There's this emptiness. There's this, there's this longing and this want and this emptiness for righteousness. And then I think we are then transformed into this right-hand side of the column. We see transformation happen. We see that those who are poor in the spirit, those who are broken, are now merciful. As they hunger and thirst for righteousness, they now become merciful, 5-7, and the merciful shall receive mercy. Those who are brokenhearted over their sin and mourn, those who are brokenhearted in general and mourn through the fullness of salvation and sanctification through pursuing righteousness, are pure in heart. The brokenhearted become pure in heart, and they will see God. And the meek, those who are meek, so we stand and we let things happen through the fullness of the gospel. We now don't just stand. We now become peacemakers and we enter into the situation. Now, I bring all this to you say that we see these two things of righteousness. And I'm convinced with this pattern, what this grid shows us, is that this is the righteousness that Jesus is talking of. That he is talking of obedience, a moral righteousness, a pursuing and a hungering and a thirsting of wanting to be Obedient, Matt Chandler would say that God does not desire your begrudging obedience, but that he desires obedience to come out of love. But at what level are we talking here? So let's keep going in the Sermon on the Mount. Flip to 520. 
If you flip to chapter 5, verse 20, you see Jesus says, For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. And then he goes on to tell us what that looks like for righteousness to exceed that of the scribes and the Pharisees. Because remember, these guys follow the law. To, I mean, to the, they dot the I, they cross the T, they tithe on everything. They, they follow the law to the T. They are the definition of obedience. But Jesus says it's got to be something deeper than that. And he takes it to the heart on four things as we were to continue. This launches into where he says, you have heard that it was said, you shall not murder. You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. You have heard that it was said, you shall not swear falsely. You have heard that it was said, you uh, take an eye for an eye. You have heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. And he takes these laws, these ideas that the scribes and the Pharisees live by, and he exceeds their expectations. He, ev- he elevates the expectation here. But he elevates it by taking it to your heart. See, it's, it doesn't... What Jesus is going to say here is it doesn't matter so much what you do as why you do it. Now, don't take that to say, well, I had good intentions, right? No, he's talking about a righteous heart, a heart that is clean, a heart that is ruled by the peace of Christ, as we have talked about. And so Jesus takes this list of four things or five things, and he says, but Jesus says, if you have anger or malice in your heart, so if you want somebody to be hurt, then you might as well have just murdered them. It's the same thing. He elevates the expectation. He says, but Jesus says, I know know you've heard that you shouldn't commit adultery, but I'm telling you that if you just look, if you just look at a woman lustfully with your eyes, you've already committed adultery with her in your heart. And he takes it again to the heart, which is much harder, right? And it's easier to hide. He says, you have heard... Do not swear falsely. And I'm telling you, don't even take an oath. You've got nothing to swear by. You don't own anything to swear by. Let your yes be yes. Let your no be no. Just trust the Lord. You've heard it said, take an eye for an eye. And he's saying, turn the other cheek. Don't take an eye for an eye. But if someone sues you for your tunic, give them your cloak as well. If they slap you on one side, give them the other side to slap. He takes it so much further. You've heard that it was said, love your neighbors and hate your enemy. But Jesus says, love your enemies and pray for those that persecute you. See, Jesus isn't looking for this, our self-willed obedience. Growing up, my mom used to do this thing that drove me nuts. My dad would say, son, will you take out the trash for me? And as I'm getting up to be obedient and take out the trash, my mom would say, he'd love to. I wouldn't love to. I wouldn't even like to. There's nothing in me that desires to take out the trash at this moment, but I love my father, and so I'm going to do it because he asked me to do it, right? This isn't even the kind of obedience that he's talking about. See, there's no rebellion in me in taking out the trash. I had plenty of rebellions, but it wasn't in basic chores, right? It wasn't in when my dad would say, will you please do this? But it would drive me insane when my mom would say he'd love to. But I see what she was trying to get at. See, I think without even knowing it, maybe she was getting at what Jesus is getting at here. That our obedience comes out of love. It comes out of affection. Jesus is saying, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Because we'd love to. 
I'd, I'd love to honor my Lord. I'd love to honor my Jesus. I'd love for Jesus to be the center of it all. I'd love for Jesus to be what drives me. I'd love for that to be. I'm in a constant battle with my flesh for that to be true. But I desire, I hunger, I thirst, I am empty, and I want to be filled with righteousness. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. See, as you see Jesus battle with the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the scribes throughout all the New Testament, you see he is not even, listen to me, remotely interested in your ritual obedience. You being here on Sunday morning doesn't mean anything to Jesus at all. Where your heart is, where your affections are, where your desires are. Jesus isn't looking for more more good Christian churchgoers. He's saying this is what it looks like to be a disciple. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Two more times we see the word righteousness in the Sermon on the Mount. Out of all the Beatitudes, this is probably the most repeated one. Matthew 6 is bookended. In the beginning it says, Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them, for then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. So in other words, listen... Not only is Jesus not interested in your ritual obedience, Jesus is definitely not interested in you flaunting it for other people to see. Because whose glory are you pursuing when you do that, right? You're, you're, you're pursuing your own glory. You want people to see what you have done, and so you make sure they see it. It's like the, uh, I'm, I'm a Seinfeld fan, and there's a Seinfeld episode with a soup Nazi where where, or a restaurant where he goes to put the tip in the jar, right? But as he goes to put the tip in the jar, the servers turn their back, and he realizes they didn't see me put the tip. I want them to see me put the tip. And so he goes into reach and steal back what he tipped in, and of course, right then the server turns around. Right? I, I think so often this is what we do with, with our supposed righteousness. We, we want to make sure people see it. We may not be like the scribes and the Pharisees and the Sadducees. We may not blow trumpets before we do something amazing. We, sometimes we sure wait till somebody's looking, don't we? Or we love to post it on Facebook or Instagram. Boy, if we could live like we are on Facebook. If reality were like social media. I've seen some great, I've taken some great pictures, man, in coffee shops sometimes with my Bible all marked up, my coffee next to it, and my, my journal all marked up, and I go, man, that just looks righteous. Click. <laughs> I need that to be shared and liked a lot. It's not so much that Jesus desires that you do things in secret, it's that he desires that you desire to do things so much that you do them in secret. That your desire for him is so strong that it just permeates into every part of your life, even in the secret parts of your life where nobody's looking. That you realize, you want to know your character? Who are you when no one's looking? When no one's looking, when no one can know, when you know you can get away with it, who are you? Because that's who you really are. That's what this means. And then... Chapter 6 ends with one of my favorite verses of all time. I was talking with somebody about it this morning. Matthew 6, 33. But seek first the kingdom of God 
And whose righteousness? His righteousness. And all these things will be added to you. We've got to remember whose righteousness this is. That you can't do this. In your, listen, you can't, you can't willpower it. That's why Jesus doesn't like your, this, this willpowered, just white-knuckled, I'm going to do it, obedience. Jesus is not interested in that because he knows that you can't accomplish it then. That even then what looks like righteousness will just inside in your heart be selfishness, right? And so he, it's not so much that he is, is so particular that you have to do it in a certain way. It's not so much like my mom saying he'd love to because she wants me to have a good attitude about it. It's that he knows that unless it's truly coming out of love and affection, then it's not righteousness. And that can only come once you get to know God right. Once you let him expose and open your heart and you fall in love with him and he transforms you by the renewal of your mind, that his peace will rule your heart and that you will then become the hands and feet of Jesus. This, this is what it looks like to be righteous. And it's His righteousness. It's not yours. Don't, don't read the Sermon on the Mount and walk away thinking, I've got to be a better Christian. Walk away saying, I've got an amazing God who will transform me into this. He can transform you into this. It's His righteousness. But you should pursue it. Matter of fact, he says you should pursue it first. And not only first, if you read the rest of Matthew 6, I mean, he listed over Maslow's hierarchy of needs. He listed over the most basic things you could ever desire. Because, see, I think sometimes we say, well, I understand this Jesus stuff, but i got to pay the bills. I understand this Jesus stuff, but i got to have a roof over my head. I understand this Jesus stuff, but i got to have this. You know what he says? Don't worry about a roof over your head. Don't worry about clothes on your back. Don't worry about food on your table. Don't worry about even the most basic things, but seek first. Everybody say, seek first. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And the rest of that will be added to you. This is the God who can move mountains, who holds the universe in his hand. Do you think he doesn't know when your bills are due? Do you think he doesn't know the needs that you have? You feel like you've got to step away out of pursuing righteousness to make sure things are taken care of, and you miss what Jesus is saying, that there's literally nothing in this world that will satisfy you like righteousness will. But that comes through a transformed heart. Because our main idea, again, disciples pursue righteousness and find satisfaction in Christ. So what is, what is satisfaction in this? We read earlier Psalm 107. I want to read it again. Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for He is good. For his steadfast love endures forever. Let the redeemed of the Lord say so, whom he has redeemed from trouble and gathered in from the lands, from the east and from the west, from the north and from the south. Some wandered in desert waste, finding no way to a city to dwell in. Hungry and thirsty, their soul fainted within them. And then they cried to the Lord in their trouble, and he delivered them from their distress. He led them by a straight way till they reached a city to dwell in. Let them thank the Lord for his steadfast love, for his wondrous works to the children of man. For he satisfies the longing soul 
and the hungry soul he fills with good things. You could go to Isaiah. In Isaiah, he says, don't spend your resources on things that don't ultimately satisfy. But the thing is, the analogy he uses is about bread. Jesus says man cannot live on bread alone. Jeremiah tells us that we use broken cisterns to try to fill our lives and they'll never be satisfied because they're broken and they constantly empty. All these things that we chase in our life, and I don't know what you're chasing. We've talked about this a lot in here because it's, it's, it's the human condition, right? The human condition is that we chase comfort, we chase safety, we chase money, we chase security, we chase popularity, we chase fame or whatever it is you want to chase or maybe it's just pleasure maybe you just want to avoid doing hard things and maybe you're just trying to chase pleasure what you need to understand as those are all broken cisterns they don't work they won't hold it it won't last no matter how good it is at first it will leave you longing and empty. It'd be like, we're going we're gonna to do the Lord's Supper today. And, uh, and I'm an art guy, I like art. But it would be like being more excited about seeing a Last Supper painting than actually participating in the Holy Ordinance of Communion. Now I love a good painting, even if they're horribly historically inaccurate of what the Last Supper looked like. I mean, it's still a good painting, right? But it'd be like when it came time to have the Lord's Supper today, to have communion today, instead of actually taking communion, just putting a picture of the Last Supper up on the screen and all of us ooing and aahing and talking even about the details of that painting. What a waste of time. When we can participate in communion with the holy God of the universe. See, all good things on earth are but shadows of God's greatness. The reason He gave you marriage, the reason He gave us those relationships, for those that have them and don't appreciate them, or for those that don't and desire them, understand that it's a broken cistern. And don't amen and nudge your spouse, please. But understand that marriage is a broken cistern. In and of itself, it won't satisfy. In and of itself, it won't, it won't be a lasting satisfaction and fulfillment for you. It's just a shadow. It's just a picture. Just like the picture of the Last Supper. And it's almost historically inaccurate, right? It's almost as inaccurate of, of the, the gospel because of the way we treat each other. It's supposed to be a picture of us and Jesus as, as we are the bride and He is the groom. As His church. This is why God created marriage. God created food so that you could experience pleasure and think of Him, not just so you could have something that tastes good. All these broken cisterns are just pictures. And they are inadequate in and of themselves. See, Jesus says it like this in John. John 4, 13 and 14, speaking with the woman at the well. Jesus said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. That's about far more than meeting our needs, life is. 
In John 7, again, he says, On the last day of the feast, the, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Here's, here's what I want to tell you. Disciples hunger and thirst. Disciples pursue righteousness and satisfaction in Christ. Disciples hunger and thirst for righteousness, but all of us hunger and thirst for satisfaction. Disciples just realize it's found in righteousness. See, inside every single one of us is the same broken cistern looking for satisfaction. It's just that disciples who are in the kingdom have found that satisfaction. They found it in Jesus. And I want to tell you, whatever you think about religion, whatever you think about church, whatever you think about me, you must realize that this is the truth. I mean, does it make sense, really, for Jesus to come down out of heaven and live on earth and then be tortured and humiliated and beaten and abused and murdered just so that you could come to church? Or do you think perhaps it's about so much more than that? I mean, maybe you've tested out church. Maybe you've come to church and you, tell, you want to tell me right now, Pastor, I've tried this and it's a broken cistern. To which I would reply, then I assume you must have only tried religion. Because listen, when you encounter Jesus, it's not some sort of philosophical idea of here's where I'm going to go and I'm going to try to be a good person. When you follow Jesus, when you encounter the one who breathed this out that this whole entire book is about, when you encounter him, you can't leave the same. And when you find yourself dissatisfied, it's because you have turned to a broken cistern again. You will only find satisfaction in the beauty of the gospel. That's it. Only if Jesus is the center, the foundation of everything. Otherwise, you will find yourself chasing after satisfaction for the rest of your life. And you, you may, which I think is perhaps the most dangerous path, chase it in seemingly innocuous things. We all know that if we chase it in drugs and, and alcohol and, and, and rampant sex and, and all sorts of crazy wild things the world loves to rail on, we all know that that ends at the bottom of a barrel, right? What you don't realize is the most dangerous path for you to run is this broken cistern of religion which also leaves you empty but confused. Because when you find yourself at the bottom of the barrel of choices that the whole world will tell you are bad, you know why you're at the bottom of a barrel. You know why it didn't work. But when you find yourself at the bottom of the barrel sitting in a pew, you start to be convinced that maybe God is a broken cistern. Perhaps that's the devil's most crafty plan. I would tell you, pursue his kingdom and his righteousness. What does that look like? That looks like surrendering. 
It looks like recognizing what the ledger looks like, right? That on one side is a massive amount of debt, and the other side is just more debt. And you just surrender it. To be in his kingdom is for him to be your Lord, for him to be in charge. I remember when my oldest son prayed to receive Christ. I love the way he worded it in his own words. He said, from now on, Jesus needs to be the boss. And we don't do things just because, well, he'd love to. We do things because we love him. Because not only is he worthy of it, but even, listen, selfishly, John Piper calls it Christian hedonism. Hedonism is pursuing the greatest pleasure at all times. John Piper calls it Christian hedonism. In other words, listen, even if you want to be selfish, be selfish. Go after the greatest pleasure you'll ever find in life. I'm just telling you where it is. I'm telling you, you don't have to chase. You don't have to pursue. You don't have to be an adventurer and a wonderer and try to find it. I'm telling you, it's in Jesus. The greatest pleasure you'll ever find in life. The greatest fulfillment you'll ever find in life will be in him. But even this side of earth, it will never be complete. This side of glory. Romans 8 says, For we know that the whole creation, not only us, but the whole creation, has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit, the Holy Spirit inside of us, we still groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. This is what it means to hunger and thirst. It's to realize, man, I haven't found it yet. Even in Christ, I haven't found the depths of it yet. But I know that that's where I'll find my satisfaction. I know that's where I'll be filled. I know that my cistern is broken, so I must use his. For I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. I want to read that C.S. Lewis quote again. If I find in myself a desire which no experience in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that I was made for another world. This is not our home. It will always be broken. Last night, there was an explosion in New York City. Fortunately, whoever did it wasn't strategic enough and There's only injuries. But as we know, as we've seen the patterns in this world, that's probably not the last time that's going to happen. We know that this this world, there's all sorts of crazy things going on, that this is a broken and fallen world, and that we are broken and fallen. And, And certainly, we must understand in this that there are no cisterns that aren't broken outside of Jesus. I mean, even even think about this. Here's where I would challenge you. Whatever it is that you tend to chase other than Jesus, because we all do this. Every single one of us do this. We find things that we chase, whether it be notoriety, fame, popularity, money, sex, security of, of finances, just whatever recognition, whatever it is that you think, if I could just have that. I mean, we just go back and listen to the entire Ecclesiastes series, right? Whatever it is, you you don't even have to go back to Solomon, although he's a great example. 
Find somebody in this world that doesn't know Jesus, that has gotten what you want, and see how satisfied they are. I mean, just, just find them, right? I mean, what, if, if it's money, find the richest person you can find and read everything you can about them. And unless they found Jesus, I promise you, they haven't found fulfillment. Everyone has a moment where they lay their head down on the pillow and they wonder, is this all there is? Is this it? You're not alone in that. It's a universal problem. But there's a universal answer. And it sounds so preachery, so Sunday school, but I'm telling you, Jesus is the answer. Satisfaction will only be found in the gospel. In the kingdom of God, disciples pursue righteousness and find their satisfaction in Christ. I want to challenge you. Think back to the head, heart, hands, habits, the the whole thing we did there. here's Here's what this looks like for you. We, we, we said that it starts with, with head. It starts with knowledge, right? But knowledge alone isn't enough. That's a, that's a dangerous road to run down by itself. But it starts with you spending time in God's Word. Coming and listening to preaching, coming to a small group isn't enough. You need a daily diet of God's Word in your life. That, that as it says in Romans 12, that you will be transformed by the renewal of your mind. This is the word of God that he spoke out for your transformation. And then then listen, but read it with your mind and read it with your heart and let it transform you by the renewal of your mind so that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect, or other words, in other words, what is satisfying, what is fulfilling, what will last, what cisterns aren't broken. And then, in that, stand confident in the peace of Christ and let the peace of Christ rule your heart. But so often, here's what we do. We'll take those steps, but we don't let it flow out, out of our hands, into action. Transform mind, transform heart, transform hands. But you've got to have habits in your life that help you continually go after this. Because listen, every day, oftentimes many times in a day, you're going to find yourself chasing yourself instead. So we're about to take the Lord's Supper here in a minute. And as we prepare to do that, I want you to take, take a minute and, and just reflect in your heart. Ask God to speak to you. Ask God to show you what broken cisterns you keep running to. Ask Him to help you pursue first the kingdom of God and His righteousness. To not worry about things. Pray that Jesus would be the center of your life, of this church.
and prepare your heart to take communion with the Lord. Let's pray. Lord, I pray that that we would have a hunger and a thirst for righteousness in us. That we would find our satisfaction in you. Lord, that we would be transformed by the renewal of our mind as we read your word. That our heart would be ruled by your peace and our hands would do your ministry of reconciliation. Lord, that you would not let us be distracted by civilian affairs, but let us desire to please the one who enlisted us. Lord, as we prepare to take communion with you, my prayer is that you would speak to our hearts, that you would be the center. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.